Our following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning, Restoration Southside. Thank you, uh, Jared, for the introduction. Um, Yes, we are doing well. Uh, Mama and baby are uh, doing great. So um, we are thankful. Thank you for your prayers and your thoughts for us this past couple of weeks and days um, as we're transitioning into uh, the parenthood life. And so continue to pray for us. We love your encouragement also. So uh, this morning we'll look on Palm Sunday uh, at uh, the cross of Christ. Um, This is because uh, though uh, we uh, mark on Palm Sunday the celebration of Jesus coming in as this king and and, uh, Messiah, we want to focus this week on the cross and what it does to us and for us in the Christian life. And um, because of that, uh, we'll look here at this Matthew passage and see different things in it. But first, um, Cormac McCarthy is uh, a famous American novelist. He's written um, books like The Road and many other things. And he has uh, the, the artistic ability to look at hard topics uh, and deal with them in really um, profound ways, but also dark and heavy ways. And one of his books and novels is uh, No Country for Old Men, a movie that the Coen brothers have turned, uh, or a book that the Coen brothers have turned into a movie. And uh, in this movie, it's hard to watch and it's heavy and dark. uh, So I would only suggest it to you if you're able and um, ready for it. But one of the themes in this movie that you see is this old Western uh, police officer, the sheriff, who can't quite uh, keep up with the evil. The bad guys are in town inflicting chaos uh, and, and a horror into the life of a town and its citizens, and the sheriff just can't keep up. The good guys can't quite keep up with the bad guys. That is to say, the, the bad is outdoing the good, it seems like. The disorder is is overtaking the the way of order. Here this morning, we see and we feel this story like the bad guys just are outdoing the good guys. That the condemnation and the the deliverance and, and the journey to the cross where Jesus will die will win the day. That's what it feels like and it seems like when we read this story. Even as Christians who know the ending, it still still hurts. And as people who may not be familiar with it, we, we still feel like it's confusing. What do we do with this person of Jesus, this one who's been promised in the Old Testament, who's born and has this um, ministry and, uh, of healing and of words and deeds and so many other things as he brings this kingdom, and now he's under trial, and now he's being killed. What do we do with that? Right, what kind of king is this? But also, where is God in it? What is God up to in it? Because surely this uh, hard, cruel, gory scene has to have some purpose in it. And so this morning we'll see three things. In the passage of the cross, we'll see the darkness of the cross, uh, the accomplishment of the cross, and then third, the life of the cross. And with that in mind, would you pray with me? 
Lord, you are king. And it's not just like the people of Israel in the ancient days of the Old Testament or the people in Jerusalem or other people after your coming. It's not just them who see you and want to have you as a king in our own image, but rather, Jesus, you are a king that comes with the kingdom and you invite us into it. And so teach us more what kind of king you are like in these next few minutes and what that means for us. As the cross of Christ is a part of you, Jesus, make it a part of us today. Pray this because, Jesus, you are reigning and ruling even amidst a pandemic. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So first we see the darkness of the cross. Uh, Ancient historians uh, like the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, the Roman historian uh, Tatticus, and uh, other Roman and Stoic philosophers have written about this event, right? This historic event and what went on and the implications of it. And here in the biblical account and narrative of Matthew, he's writing to show Jewish uh, Christians what the accomplishment of Jesus did and what it was like and the meaning behind it. And so much of the Matthew account is leaning towards and trying to show is that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. He's the one who has been waited for for many, many, many years. And how that is good news in this story. In Exodus 10 and 11 and 12 in the Old Testament... We see uh, the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. There are slaves in Egypt, and uh, they are about to be delivered. God has promised to bring them out of Egypt into a new land where it's prosperous. In Egypt, they're, they're um, treated poorly as slaves by a wicked nation and wicked rulers. And God wants to bring them out of it to say to them, You are my beloved. I will provide and deliver and care for you. And so in between um, them being slaves and them being free, them belonging to Egypt and Pharaoh and them belonging to Yahweh, there is this idea of exodus. And right before the exodus, right before they leave Israel, is uh, the plagues where God is trying to tell the people of Egypt, these are my people, let them go. And these plagues get the attention of the rulers of Egypt. And in the final plague, uh, we see that the people of Israel are told uh, to avoid death, they are to kill an unblemished lamb, put the blood of that unblemished lamb on their doorstep and on their doorway and on their posts because that is a symbol. It's an indicator of who the household belongs to. That the angel of death would pass over them in judgment because there's blood on their wooden doorways. The blood of the lamb that they shed would make sure that no blood in the house was shed. So fast forward to this account that Jared just read for us uh, in Matthew. And it says in verse 45, 
as Jesus goes to the cross. It says, Now from the sixth hour uh, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Uh, That is to say, the sixth hour, which was noon, until the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m., there was darkness over the land. And at 3 p.m. in the temple, a lamb was sacrificed. After these three hours of darkness, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple because it was Passover. The same event that went on in the most influential events in the people of Israel, this exodus, this Passover, where the blood of the lamb spoke for the household, the same thing is happening at the cross of Christ. The blood of the lamb speaks and has great meaning. Matthew is showing his audience that Jesus is this Passover lamb. And he's a Passover lamb amidst these three hours of darkness. And it's not simply an eclipse that lasts minutes, but rather it lasts hours. In this unnatural darkness, in the Greco-Roman and the Jewish uh, uh, thought, was an omen. And this omen was uh, showing that a good, righteous person has died. And after they died, there is this darkness that comes. This, this grieving and this, this idea that life has been taken from those who are righteous. Judgment is being seen on the cross. And we, what we need to know is that as there this, this darkness, this omen in the Jewish uh, and Greco-Roman thought, what we see here in this story is that there is a reason behind the darkness. That there is purpose and, and reason behind the darkness because there is purpose and reason on the judgment of God and on the judgment of God the Son. There's a seriousness on the judgment inflicted on him because it's dark and, and uh, Jesus says things and cries out on the cross things like on the ninth hour when the lamb was slain, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says right after that, uh, that they said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus here is quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. And David cries out when he feels oppressed, when he feels like God has forsaken him. And in Psalm 22, along with saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David says things like this. All who see me mock me. They say to me, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He says, I'm poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within my breasts. He says, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Now, David never experienced his garments being cast out as lots. He was never told that by others 
that he is foolish for trusting in the Lord in a way that's quoted in Psalm 22, but rather he felt it so deeply that his experience felt like forsakenness. And yet his prophetic words are the words that Christ himself fulfills. Jesus doesn't say, my hands, my hands, be as there are nails in his hands and in his side, his feet. He doesn't say, uh, my friends, my friends, why have you forsaken me? Because all of his friends have uh, deserted him. All of his closest friends who just hours before said, I will be with you, Lord. They've all left him. He's alone and no one else is with him to even carry a cross. The greatest pain that Jesus felt on the cross was the separation from his father because of the judgment that was being poured out upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of the person of the king that the Christian faith uh, says, I'm following him. Now, what we need to know is that on the cross, it is not a sign and a reality that there is hopelessness. But rather, the darkness that's felt and seen on the cross and the darkness of the cross points to a deep-seated Production of hope. That is to say, there is a purpose behind the darkness of the cross, and there is purpose behind the cry of Christ. One show that my wife and I have uh, watched over the years on and off is Grace Anatomy. And in Grace Anatomy, there's a, a scene in many, many uh, seasons ago where uh, Derek Shepard, this brain surgeon, uh, works on a patient. There's a dire case that looks uh, very, very fatal. And he works for hours and hours in planning and also executing this surgery. And in the surgery, uh, he, he does great work with his hands and the patient's recovering. And after this brain surgery, this patient wakes up and screams out in pain and screams and, and shrills and cries out, and all these nurses and doctors run to him, and they try to calm him down. And they try to, try to soothe him and give him medicine and, and speak to him and, and talk him down. And yet the, the brain surgeon, Derek Shepard, says to this patient who's screaming out in pain, he says, this is not a dying pain. This is a healing pain. After a hard surgery that inflicted great pain on a patient, what they needed to know was that there was purpose to their pain. That is to say that their pain in their life is not wasted. And the cross of Christ shows us that the pain that Christ feels is not a dying pain, though he will die. The pain and the cry and the darkness of Christ on the cross is a healing pain because there is purpose behind it, because it's not wasted. Because if it is wasted, the Christian faith is a house of cards, it's a facade. It's something that, that has no meaning at all, but rather is twisted. And yet the pain of Christ and the hope of Christianity is that just as the pain of Christ is not wasted, so will our own pain is not wasted. Wasted. It has meaning. 
that this, this uh, sacrificial lamb, this Passover lamb, is the one who cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we ourselves won't be forsaken. On the cross, we see empathy. Jesus knows our pain, and he won't waste it. And on the cross, we see Jesus as a sufficient Savior who takes on judgment that is due for us, and he deals with the guilt and the shame that plagues us, and he does something with it. A New Testament uh, theologian uh, Fleming Rutledge says this. She says, With all due respect to the religions of the world, there is no other story like the Christian story. The God who thunders, the God who persecutes and condemns, the God who wreaks vengeance. Yes, we know this God from caricatures. We know this God from old paintings. We know this God from hearing continual references to the Old Testament God. But this is not who God is. The Old Testament God is the one who comes down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh and on his own free will and decision has come under his own judgment in order to deliver us from an everlasting condemnation and bring us into eternal life. He has not required human sacrifice. He has himself become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us. He himself was turned over and forsaken. Friends, the darkness of the cross frames our darkness. And the cry of the cross frames our own cry. Because there is meaning and purpose to our pain. Because the king we follow is not one that's disgusted to condescend to our own frailty and dire destination because of our sin. Rather, he, he revels in it. He's immersed in it to the degree that he cries out and he takes on the judgment. He's the Passover lamb that takes away sin. So if that's the darkness of the Christ cross, what does the cross accomplish? We see two things immediately after Christ dies. It says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And the coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping over, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake that took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And so we see two things. Immediately this cross accomplishes. First is this. In the temple, there was a curtain that separated those who were clean, that is God, and those who were unclean, all of humanity. And immediately when Christ is, uh, is killed, when Christ gives up his spirit, this curtain, this curtain that is said to be 60 feet tall and four inches thick, tears from top to bottom, right down the middle. The forsakenness of Christ accomplishes this, immediate fellowship with God. 
we see that God is not simply indifferent towards people. Right? When we feel in our faith that God really doesn't know how he feels about us. He's still making up his mind. He might be annoyed with us. He may be indifferent with us. He may be angry at us. The accomplishment of the cross of Christ shows us this. That God tears down the very thing that separates us. And God will not allow his son to die bloody on a tree if he's still making his mind up about us. We see that he gives us access. There's no separation between us. But we also see that there's this uh, life-inducing disruption. We see uh, people come out of their graves and walk around. Those who have died have become alive again. And we see people who just had killed Jesus and mocked him see this earthquake and all of a sudden say to themselves, truly, this was the Son of God. God uses the things and acts in a way to bring life to what is dead in ways and manners that are usually not regular. Not calculated, but rather they're surprising Because the Christian faith brings a hope that is surprising. We are surprised by hope in the way that life is brought amongst death. The cross is a place where redemption is accomplished. Now in our day uh, in the West, it's hard to accept things that we ourselves can attain by our own means. Right, so uh, that is to say, Uh, In the West, uh, we live in a life of materialism. It's just the fabric of our own culture and own society, where we value comfort and leisure. We have homes, we have goods, we have uh, cars, we have comfort, we have vacations, we have all of these things. And uh, Chattanooga's own uh, economist, Brian Fickert, says that there are deforming practices of certain models of capitalism in our world today. And because of that, the church has this inability to adequately prepare and spiritually form the people who are in the church. And he has this economic theory called homo economicus. Now, what does that word mean? He says, homo economicus is this. We ourselves as human beings are conceived only as autonomous, rational, self-interested, material beings. So people remain fixed in this view where our maximum effort is to result in comfort and leisure and fun. And the only impediment is a budget constraint. So what does that mean? That means we long as only material creatures to have comfort and leisure. And so as material creatures to accomplish comfort and leisure, we work more because the only thing between us and our goal is money and a budget constraint. So when we work and get more money and resources to accomplish things, we gain what we want. We accomplish things that we ourselves can get because we long for it. We see this uh, particularly in Christmas. Uh, now, that is not to downplay uh, the consumerism in Christmas and gifts. It's not it at all. What uh, I do want to point out, though, is we see this embodied when gifts are given. 
So uh, when gifts are given to a child, they rip open the package, uh, they have wide eyes, and they scream and show everyone what they've gotten. Because they know what they've been given, they could never accomplish themselves. And we see this in Christmas in adults with their given gifts and aren't that impressed. Why? Because they themselves can accomplish it themselves as material beings who long for comfort and leisure. And they accomplish their comfort and leisure in consumerism by monetary means. What does that have to do with the cross? It's this. The great accomplishment of the cross is that we have been given a thing that we could never accomplish on our own. We've been given something that we could never, ever have on our own. And therefore, we are called to accept it in a way that we are more like children than adults on, East, on Christmas morning. The Easter morning and Christmas morning are so connected, not because it deals with the birth and the death and resurrection of Christ, but rather it's so amazing because we've been given a gift in the incarnation of Christmas and been given a gift in the accomplishment of Christ on the cross that is so amazing and powerful that we could never accomplish it. What are we called to do in this time of Easter, and particularly on Good Friday when Christ goes to the cross? It's to revel in the fact that our own sin is the only thing that has helped accomplish the thing that we gain. That's the great mystery of this Christian faith compared to all other faiths. What gets us in is the things that are so thwarted and wrong about us. That's the only prerequisite. And yet we get something we could never receive and and attain on our own access to God, and life-inducing interruptions. How do we ourselves need to accept the things that Christ has accomplished for us? There's no separation between us, no, no, no curtain. And also, we've been given life to what is dead. The very things that seem in our life that are toxic like relationships seemingly meaningless like vocations or a news where it's populated with pandemics, the things that seem like decaying is where life is given. So if that's the accomplishment of the cross, lastly, what's the life of the cross? What does it mean for us today? In all faiths, the longing is for there to be peace when uh, a person is connected with the highest power. When someone in the human race is connected with the highest power, that's place to meet Jesus than the cross. There's no other place other than the Easter story that begins with something as sinister as a criminal's cross that brings about death. That is to say, to be near and to know King Jesus is to be near and know him as a sufferer, as someone who who longs to give love and life amidst suffering. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. The Christian faith is not something that is boiled down and uninformed in escapism. The Christian faith, as we see on the cross, is leaning in to the human condition. We see it's something where there's an inverse relationship with the things that we feel. Because even amidst death, life can be felt. What is high is brought low, and what is low is brought high. This Jesus was born in a manger to a terrified teenager. He was raised in a small town that someone said nothing good can come of that town. He was not of royal upbringing, but was a carpenter. He worked with his hands, the same hands that he has nails in. His entourage were not those of power, but were average Joes who will leave him and forsake him. And yet he's coming amidst all that to bring life and death. There is an inverse relationship in light of the cross. And so, friends, what does that mean? The call of the Christian life is to model the cross as we live in light of the cross. Because the cross has happened, we ourselves live the life in the pattern of the cross. A friend of mine, Mo Leverett, has said this. He says, one of the mistakes and sins of the evangelical church in America is that it has abandoned the pattern of the cross. It has accepted a different form of spirituality than that which Christ lived out. We have accepted a spirituality where there is no suffering. You see, we were called, just as Christ was, to enter into the sufferings of others to suffer so that they might find redemption, suffer with them, oftentimes for them, so they might find healing. In these next few days of Holy Week, where we go to the cross on Friday, and on Friday he's a criminal, and on on Sunday he's risen as a king, what I would humbly present and pose is that if the cross was powerful enough for Jesus, how can it be powerful enough for us in our own day? That the life of sacrifice and the life of the cross is a pattern for us to take up, not because we're masochists or we think we're by our sufferings we're achieving something and getting the record straight and getting it right and earning something, but rather It's something that we ourselves know life can be found because life has been found in it already. That we follow the pattern of Jesus because to divorce the Christian life and the cross of Christ is to think little of the invitation to fully believe what Christ has done and what he has freed us for. Christ empathetically cried out on the cross so that we would not feel alone and judged and forsaken. Friends, we are called by God to love him 
And because we love him so greatly, we are to love our neighbor. How are you called to empathetically love God so greatly that it outpours to your neighbor and it changes a city, even as things like lockdowns and closures and job loss are in our midst? When we feel like the world is decaying, Christ says, this is not too much for my cross and the accomplishment of it to bring life-disrupting occurrences. Martin Luther King said this in the Civil Rights Movement. He said, everyone in the movement must lead a sacrificial life. And so what I would say to us this very day, for those who know Christ, follow Christ, and are shaped by Christ, A sacrificial life is required in order so that the watching world can have hope. And when we fail to do that, the watching world has every right to say, where is your God? Just like the sailors said to Jonah. Because every Christian is called to live a life of sacrifice so that others may find hope in life. Because everyone in the movement must lead a sacrificial life. Why? Because the darkness of the cross has accomplished something. And it said things like this, God has chosen what was low and despised in the world to bring about life. And it's an invitation, not a stagnant fact of theology, but an invitation into knowing and loving and changing our world as Jesus reigns and rules this very day and invites us into that reign and rule, even as he will sit in a tomb and overcome death. Let's pray. Lord, you are our king. You are the one that has called us to take up our own cross and follow you. So Lord, may we not uh, take a pattern where we are so self-involved that we forget the fact that you have accomplished something that we can never attain. And because that one thing is true and beautiful and captivating and even mysterious, that one thing shapes all we do, how we are um, parents, how we are friends, how we are a citizens even, and Lord, especially how we're neighbors. May we be captivated by what you say of us and what you say that there is purpose behind all pain because it is moving towards a trajectory of life, that there's purpose behind all pain, that there's meaning in it, and it's not wasted. Jesus, remind us of that today, that when we see startling news, that we can say in our hearts and minds, in our belief and in our unbelief, God, you reign. God, you reign. God, you reign. We pray this in your name, Christ. Amen.